Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Sir, sorry. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Great job, Allie. That's a long passage, huh? I know that most of you are thinking, I'm so glad he didn't ask me to read that. In 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, but his words are still incredibly relevant. Times have changed, but the human heart has remained the same. We have the same hopes, same fears, the same doubts, same personal failures as those who have come before us even thousands of years. We still struggle with the same problems, with anger, foolish choices, hypocrisy, indifference. We still struggle with limited faith, convenient excuses, nagging doubt, and continual busyness. You know, I hear people talk about, in, in my line of work, I hear people talk about making the Bible relevant, which I think is an utterly silly notion. All you have to do is make the Bible clear. It's plenty relevant. Matter of fact, it might be so relevant, you might want you might not want to hear what it really has to say. Because it's so relevant. This scene in John 4 is the longest recorded conversation that anybody had with Jesus. Even more than any of his disciples. It was probably mid-July when this took place. When the temperature would top 105 plus degrees. We know what that's like. Jesus had been traveling all day with his friends. They start out in the morning at sunrise. And by this time, the sun was directly overhead. And it was excruciatingly, unbearably hot. And so they came to this well, a deep hole with a rock rim around it, very typical of the area, some half mile outside of a little village, near the point where two trade routes would meet. It was a very well-known well. It's called Jacob's Well because it was dug by the patriarch Jacob 2,000 years before this. It was fed by a spring, an underwater spring at about 150 feet deep that continued to produce water year after year after year. Still producing water. After 2,000 years, it's amazing to me how long wells last and how much they produce when the area isn't overpopulated. Shell and I visited this well when we were in Israel quite a few years ago. It's still there. And at precisely this moment when Jesus shows up at this well, so does a woman. She was there at a time not typical of women to go to a well. It was very unusual also, not just the time that she was there, but the fact that she was there alone. It was dangerous for a woman to travel alone. It was dangerous for her to go to a well alone. But this was a different woman. And as this woman meets Jesus, there are four barriers that stand between the two. One is a religious barrier. The second is a gender barrier. 
The third is a racial barrier, and the fourth is a moral barrier. And that just like my Jesus, he finds a way through them all. And he finds her. I want to explain to you a little bit of geography of this area because geography is crucially important for this account. So let me give a little context before I give some content. Is that all right? In Jesus' day, there were three regions in this area of the, of, the, of, of, the, of the promised land. There were three areas that were in constant conflict with each other. In the north was the area of Galilee. Just below that, in the middle between the three, it was Samaria, and down to the south was Judea. And so to get from Galilee to Judea, or Judea to, to, to Galilee, you had to navigate through this place called Samaria. The quickest way is to go right through it. And we know from verses 1, 2, and 3 of John 4 that Jesus and the disciples had just been in the southern part down in Judea. And because pastors are so insecure... The religious leaders of the day were so insecure that Jesus was gaining popularity, they thought, well, his stuff's growing more than my stuff. Let's chase him out. And so Jesus leaves Judea in the south and has to get to Galilee in the north. The quickest, easiest way is to go right through Samaria. Verse 4 of John 4 says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Why? Why did he have to? I'll explain to you in detail in just a moment, but suffice it to say that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So as a result, pious Jews, the really, really good churchy, the really religious ones would bypass Samaria and go around Samaria if they had to go from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee. They would not go through it. So here's, here, here's a little more context. The history of this whole thing any of you ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, so the history of the Samaritans, here, here, here it is. In 722 BC, you have the, the 12 tribes of Israel in the Promised Land. It's cut in the middle, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. In 722 BC, Assyria marches down into northern Promised Land, where the 10 tribes are, and takes most of them out in captivity. Later, the Babylonians would come take over Assyria and then come down and take the other two tribes into captivity. Uh, but, but, but for now, these 10 tribes taken over by Assyria back into Assyria. Now, the Assyrians would leave some of the Jewish, the Hebrews, some of the Jewish people in the northern part of the land. They would leave a few. And they would bring in other non-Jews to assimilate with them, thus trying to wipe out their entire identity. Do you understand? Okay. So when these other people were brought into the northern part of Israel, where the 10 tribes had vacated, though there were some left, they began to intermarry. These non-Jews started to intermarry with the Jews who were left there. And as they intermarried with them, they produced kids, and their kids could produce kids. And over generations, the people who were left there, who were once formerly Jews, were now called Samaritans because they had intermarried with people from Samaria. You follow? And so over the years, what would happen is these people who were there in that land would develop their own religion based on two things. The pagan religions 
that were outside of Judaism and Judaism, and they would mix these things together. So they come up with their own religious system. Eventually, because the Old Testament said that the Jews had to worship in Jerusalem, they're up north, and now they're kind of a hodgepodge of people in belief. They built their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim. And they developed their own language and their own, their own Old Testament. They adhere, they adhere to, but they, they accepted the first, what we call the first five books of the Old Testament as Scripture, but nothing else. And so then to make matters worse, in 128 BC, they had their temple in Mount Gerizim. In 128 BC, the high priest John Harkonnes came in and said, convert to Ju- back to Judaism or else they said no. And he completely destroyed the temple and slaughtered about 100 people at the same time. So the Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. You understand why now? The Jews looked down on the Samaritans as religious and racial half-breed heretics. So if you want to think in our world today, think in terms of Palestinians and Israelis. You start to get the animosity and the hatred. So that's why when Jesus comes along in the context of talking about who is my neighbor, who am I responsible for, he tells the story of a Jewish man who's traveling and gets robbed and left for dead. And all these Jews walk by and don't give him the time of day. And then who shows up? A good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan does what the Jews should have done for their own people. You understand how profound that story was now? And the reason why Jesus said he was a good Samaritan, because every other Samaritan was a... (laughs) so verse 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria he didn't have to because there was no other way he had to because there was no other woman he had to go through Samaria because he was his purpose was to meet this woman see his purpose that he understood was to seek and save those who were far from him And this woman was, and the town she was from was. Here's what I want to understand right up front. Everyone, if you pay attention to this. When you know your purpose, it makes you do things others won't do. And so make certain your purpose is God's purpose for you. The great tragedy of life is that we have oftentimes accepted or believed a purpose for our existence that is not God's purpose. And because your purpose will make you do things other people won't, we end up doing things in pursuit of a purpose. And most people's purpose is success. And I need to help you understand this, that you can be successful without being significant. And so this is one of the reasons I'm doing that study. And don't miss your life. For men. Because in the heartbeat of every man resides this this question every day. Do I have what it takes? And most men want to answer that question. Do I have what it takes to be successful? To be a successful provider? To be a successful husband? To be a successful daddy? To be a successful whatever? And there is a vast and glorious difference between success and significance. And men, if we don't get this figured out, we're going to get the end of our days and realize 
that even if we caught success, it's hollow. Because there has been significance. You understand? And the younger you are, as a young man, the better it is when you figure this stuff out. And I want to help you do that. And that's why I'm doing that. So if, if that strikes you, I encourage you. Sign up at that Star Hub. Email us. Join us online if you have to. But I don't want you to miss your life. Nothing happens in this story by chance. Every detail has been the outworking of God's will. And this is hugely important because while this woman is not looking for Jesus, all she wants is water. Jesus is looking for her. And the same is true for so many people today. And it's probably true for some of you today, right now. Like you're not necessarily looking for Jesus. You're looking for help. You, 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 you know, you know that, that, that you just need some help. Like right now, you need a resource. You need something to intervene. You need help with your marriage. You need help with your emotions. You need help with your kids. You need help with your finances. You need, there, there's some issue of, of sadness, of depression, of, of grief, of doubt. And honestly, if your help comes from Jesus, fantastic. But if you get help somewhere else, that's great too. Right? That's just where we are. And, 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 and so we got to understand that, that you might not be specifically be looking for Jesus, but Jesus is most definitely looking for you. And so the question is, will you allow yourself to be found by him? This woman comes to the well alone at noon, which was, it just wasn't supposed to be that way. This was supposed to be a social event. This was a social gathering. The fact that she was alone meant probably that her, her neighbors knew her past. We know what that's like. We live in a small town. Small town living, ain't nothing like it. It's fantastic and it's perilous at the same time. Because once your stuff gets out, right? Or once your kids' stuff gets out, then wherever you go, people are... Perhaps she was ostracized by the other women in her little town. And I love the fact that the conversation with Jesus does not begin with her, it begins with him. He starts the conversation. And he just says, Would you, hey, yeah, give me some of my drink. See, with all the things that are different between these two, the heart of Jesus is a heart without prejudice. And here's what I love. Jesus' theology determined his sociology. This, don't miss that. His theology determined his sociology, his understanding of people, of different races, of different creeds, of different beliefs. And this is what I think the church has gotten so bass-ackwards lately, especially the last few years, because what's happened in most every church in America is that our sociology determines our theology. And it ought never be that way. See, Luke 19.10 tells us what Jesus knew. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
This story in John 4 is the outworking in vivid living color of that verse. To seek and to save this one who was lost and far from him. What looks like a random encounter was planned in the heart of God. And it's the same today. I love the fact that Jesus loves this woman. Because it tells me that he also loves us just as we are. But please understand that though Jesus loves us just as we are, if we respond to that love, he will not allow us to stay as we are. See, he came to seek and to save the lost. By very definition, if I'm lost, it means I'm not where I should be. He loves me no matter where I am. But if I'm not where I should be and respond to his love, he's going to get me to where I should be. Do you understand? And so when I look at myself apart from him, not only am I not who I should be, I'm not even where I should be. Jesus loves me regardless, but if I respond to his love, he's going to start working me into who I should be and getting to me where I should be. So to try to accept his love without his saving means I want him to act in a way inconsistent with his purpose. Yes, he loves you. And so he wants to get us from who we are to who we should be and where we are to where we should be. See, three things are of crucial note in this interaction between Jesus and this woman. One Broadly, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan because they did not talk to each other. They're too much bad blood, right? The second thing is, is a man is speaking to a woman in public and that woman he didn't know. That's, this is huge. Because the rabbis taught for the Jews, a Jewish husband didn't even talk to his own wife in public. Let alone a woman you don't know. And the third thing is, Jews did not drink from a Samaritan's cup. Like the rabbi said, that if a Jew touched a utensil that was used by a Samaritan, they automatically become ritually unclean. Like, like there's some bad blood between these two. And I love the fact that Jesus keeps pushing those boundaries and crossing those lines. And what we see here is the simplicity of salvation. Notice what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked. If you knew the gift of God, you'd ask. And he would have given it. That's the simplicity of salvation. Asking God for what he has to give and receiving it. This woman, she just doesn't get it. But like most of the conversations that Jesus has with people and how he starts with you and I, we don't get it right up front. He's saying something different. He's saying something deeper. He's calling something deeper. We don't get it right up front. Because she says, well, g g give me that water then. I don't want to have to keep coming back to this well and drink. She's thinking it's this special Gatorade. She's not realizing And see, this is where every one of us start. 
She didn't understand what he meant, but she wanted what he had. That's where every one of us are. We don't understand the totality of who God is and who Jesus is in this relationship, but we know he's got something. And whatever that is, can I have that? And so Jesus figures, I got to change the conversation a little bit, get this girl where I want her to be. I got to start, I got to start, I need to approach this a little differently. So he told her, he said, well, all right, girl. You call your husband and come on back. Go get him, come on back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. He said, yeah, you're right. You're right, you don't want a husband. Fact is, you've had five. And that old boy you're with right now, he ain't your husband. So what you're saying is true. I mean, this just clams her up. And doesn't it feel as though just being a little bit insensitive here? Like he could have said, look, I know you got a past. We don't need to talk about it. But he just flat calls her out. He says, you want to say you don't have a husband? <laughs> yeah, you're darn right you don't. You've had five. And now you're with this guy. The instruction of Jesus to go call your husband made her incredibly uncomfortable. She didn't know how much she wants to say. She says, well, I don't have a husband. She didn't know how much she wants to say because she doesn't know how much he knows. Right? And she won't go into detail, so she just wrote, well, I don't have a husband. So what happened to the other, what happened to the first five? Did they all die? Not likely. Was there a divorce? Probably. Here's how it went down back then. A woman cannot divorce a man. A man could divorce his wife. But a woman, there were certain stipulations that a woman knew if she wanted out, all she had to do was burn the toast. And so there was divorce, probably a result of her. Was there adultery, promiscuity? Probably. But, but, but we got to see this important principle. Without conviction of sin, there could be no conversion to life. Without conviction of sin, there can be no conversion to life. See, God sees behind our facade and he sees behind the lies that we tell everybody else and ourselves. And until we come to grips with our own sin and our own willful disobedience to God, we cannot be saved. And so Jesus pushes the boundary, pushes her. And by asking about her husband, he, he, he reveals and exposes her lifelong pursuit to find happiness. See, she's entered into one failed relationship after another failed relationship. From boy to boy to boy to boy. From man to man to man to man. Each time thinking, this one is the right one. Now I'll be happy. It's been 2,000 years. Things haven't changed too much, have they? And if it's not a relationship, it's something. We all bounce from one thinking, now I'll be happy. We got to realize that there's a, there's a hole in our heart that no person can ever fill. That no substance, no success can ever fill. In their culture, as in ours, we're raised to believe that if I only find the right person, I'll be happy. 
And that's why when we're without a person, we're depressed. Please understand there's no solely human relationship that can satisfy our most deepest needs. Why? Because we're spiritual beings made to worship a spiritual God. And so there's a God-shaped vacuum in every one of us that only God can fill. No merely human relationship will ever fill it. And that's why some people get so riddled with anxiety if they're not in a relationship with another person. We're made to know God, and until we know Him through Jesus, we're doomed to restlessness and despair. The thing I love about Jesus is that he knows her truth. He knows her present. He knows her past. And he still offers her life. Here's the wonder of God's grace. Please don't miss this. That it's only grace that can look at your past without blinking. Everybody else will look at your past and turn away. Everybody else in this woman's life looked at her past and turned away from It's only the grace of God that can look at our past and not even blink. And it's beautiful. I'm telling you, she is near the kingdom at this point, but she's not quite through the door yet. She's uncomfortable. And that's usually the place we got to get before we step into the kingdom. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And so she wants to change the subject. She says, it's getting too personal. And it's clear to this woman that something odd's going on here. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. And so she starts this innocuous theological debate. Because according to Old Testament law, and they had the Old Testament first five books, God said that his people must only worship him in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans want to go down to Jerusalem. They, and so they built their temple on Mount Gerizim. And so she said, okay, well, let's have this debate then. Who's right? You say it's the right side. I say it's the left side, which is right. I say it's red. You say it's blue, which is right. I vote this way. You vote that way. Which one's right? You know what I love about Jesus? Jesus didn't bother debating her. Jesus didn't get in an argument. He didn't debate anything. He just simply tells her, look, a time's coming when neither of that stuff's going to matter. And he gets to the heart of the issue for her, her relationship with God. And he says, what God wants is people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And I love the fact, I don't know if you caught it, I love the fact that Jesus never corrected her bad theology. He never sat her down and said, no, 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 let me explain to you my side on why we're right, and I'm going to explain to you your side why you're wrong. He doesn't do that. Not even about theological things. He just lets it, he gets down to the heart of it. I mean, if you read verse 25 even, the woman says, The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
What, what she's saying here is what the Samaritans, she's a Samaritan, what the Samaritans believed about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a great teacher and as the greatest teacher would explain everything. So even her words there are wrong according to who he, what the Messiah was. Messiah wasn't a teacher and explainer. He was the savior who could forgive sin. Even her, the, it's bad theology, but Jesus never bothers to even correct it. Why? Because he knows. Arguing and debating about peripherals? Uh, come on. Like, you want to worship God. Let me tell you what God wants. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's not going to matter. Geography's not going to matter. That's peripheral stuff. Jesus is saying that true worship is not about where. It's not about when. It's about who God is and your personal response to Him. God wants worship that's based in the truth of who Jesus is, who the Father is, and a wholehearted personal commitment to Him. So here's the good news and bad news about that. The bad news is that every ounce of religious activity does not count for nothing as far as getting us closer to salvation. All the religious duty, all the religious activity, all the religious ritual does not bring us one step closer to being saved. Why? Because we can go through all the motions and we can still have a heart that's filled with anger and bitterness and hatred and grudges and lust and greed and envy and pride. Here's the good news. If all God wants is someone to worship in spirit and in truth, anyone can qualify. Based on the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is, offered from a humble heart, from the deepest part of submission. And then Jesus says the one thing he wants us all to know. He boils this whole thing down to what he wants every one of us to know and to understand. In verse 26, he said, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus plainly claims to be the Messiah of God. Plainly claims that he is the one. We don't understand the power with which he makes this statement. The way it reads in Greek, is the way Jesus really said it, and that's like this. The one who is speaking to you, I am. The moment he said, I am, because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew the story of Moses. They knew that that word, I am, was the same word that God spoke to Moses about at the burning bush when Moses says, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God says, my own personal name, I am. Exodus 3.15, and Jesus uses that exact word. He's claiming, I am. Complete identity of God. This is what got Jesus killed. Please understand this. This is what got Jesus killed. I hear a lot of people say, well-intentioned, just not smart people. 
say, well, Jesus, they, they killed Jesus because he hung out with sinners. No, they didn't. The, the religious people didn't care if he hung out with sinners. They just made him a sinner. That helped their cause. They, they say, well, well, Jesus was killed because he radically loved people. No, he, that wasn't why he got killed. They didn't have anything against love. Matter of fact, love was in the Old Testament law. They were supposed to obey. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. It was all in the Old Testament. They didn't mind that at all. The thing that got killed is that he hung out with sinners and loved people radically while claiming divinity. The reason the establishment wanted Jesus dead is because he claimed that he was fully divine. That he and the Father are one. And as such, only he could forgive sin. And apart from him, everyone remained a sinner and remained condemned. That's what got him killed. And I think there's an effort to pretty the Bible up a little bit and go soft on sin. Here's Some people feel like they got to pretty the Bible up a little bit and make it more palatable. Well, please understand this. You don't got to put butter on a donut. Some things are perfect the way they are. Do you understand? Putting a butter on a donut just ruins a donut. Just let it be. It's the same thing with the Bible. You don't got to pretty it up. Just let it be. And there's a profound message in the Bible about sin and about sinners. And it has to be there. And it's okay because that message is the pathway to grace. You want to take out, take out sin, you're going to remove grace. And so Jesus presses it. And He just lets it sit there. And, and somewhere between verse 26 and 27, this woman gets saved. Just then His disciples returned and were surprised to find Him talking with a woman, but none of them wanted... You ever been in those places? Like, don't say anything right now. Like you're in that moment, but you, you, there's stuff you want, but you know it's not the right time to start talking about. Like, don't, don't say anything. You know they're looking at each other like. Like nobody wanted to say anything. Like, what are you talking about? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and, and said to the people, you, you, you know who this woman is, right? She goes back to the entire town. Come see the man who told me everyone I ever did. I mean, everything I've ever done. Uh, could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Somewhere between verse 26 and 27, she gets, how do you know what she gets? Because she leaves everything and she goes back to her people, to her little town and starts telling her huddle about this man that has just changed her. The proof that God has changed a person is that they start to worship the true God in the deepest part of their own spirit and tell their huddle about it. That's the way it is in all of Scripture. And I'm struck by how little this woman understood. All she said was, He knows me. Now, most of us, if we think about, well, I need to go tell my huddle about Jesus, we want a little bit of training. How do I answer people? How do I talk to people? What are the answers I have to have? How do I answer questions? She didn't know anything. Here's what I know about God, that God uses those who are willing to be used. She knew nothing. She just knew he want, she wanted her friends to meet Jesus. And those were her invitation. It wasn't about a confession of faith. 
It wasn't about you need to be born again, any of that stuff. It was just come and see. And it's the exact same invitation that Philip said to Nathaniel in John 1.46. Just come see him. He'll change you. There were no threats. There were no promises. Just, this, is, this is the great lesson of the power of the gospel. One woman with inadequate knowledge and a mustard seed of faith brought her whole community to Christ. Verse 39 through 41, go on and read it sometime. An afternoon visit turned into a two-day slumber party. She met Jesus, she was transformed, and she could not shut up about it. It begs the question, how, have you ever thought about how little can a person believe and still be saved? What's the bare minimum? How much does a person have to understand in order to go to heaven? Apparently not very much. That's good news. Think of it this way. How much can a person get wrong and still be saved? Apparently quite a bit. As long as you're solid on two things. Admit you're a sinner far from God and accept Jesus as the only way to be made right with Him. Everything else? Plenty of time to figure out the details. Now, let, let, I'm going to wrap it up now. There's so much here. I could go on for a long time on these 42 verses, but let me wrap it up with this. This is going to challenge some of you religious folk. Okay, I'm going to press some buttons. J just for you religious ones. I don't know if you noticed. We, we saw who this woman is, right? We know her past. We know her present. We know what kind of lifestyle she's living. Did you realize that nowhere in her conversation with Jesus, the longest recorded conversation we have of anybody having with Jesus, Jesus never corrects her marital nor relational error. Jesus never condemns her, nor does Jesus give her commands to now obey. There's another woman that he'll meet who's caught in a pretty bad act, and he at least tells her, well, go and don't do that anymore. This one, no direction, no correction, no commands. We would say, well, Jesus, maybe you missed an opportunity here. The door's open. Why don't y'all go on and tell her now? Now stop doing that. Now start doing this. Go back and make him And And, you know, here's your list of do's. Here's your list of don'ts. Now we got to see some change. He does none of it. Did you ever catch that? There's no command of obedience, of correction, You know why? Jesus knows that by the presence of the Holy Spirit, she will grow in godly living. Jesus is comfortable to leave her to the direction of the Father. Grace means this, that I let God change others by it. And I let him change me by it. See, the, truth, the hard truth behind this reality is this. That if there's no change, there's been no encounter. 
And so change doesn't have to be commanded. Change will be evident by the presence of the Holy Spirit if there's been an encounter. And most of the people who want to force commands are people who have not had an encounter. You religious people, you hear me? So this leads me back to the crucial phrase in verse 10. And, and, and he, he, here's how we wrap this whole thing up. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked. And if you would have asked, it would have been given. If you knew who I was, you would ask. What Jesus says. And I'll give you. Not just eternal life, but a well, he says, inside that springs up eternally, day after day, moment after moment, in the valleys and the mountaintops. If you knew who I was, you would come to me and ask. And I'll give it. So the question. Do you know who he is? And will you ask him? So in summary of these 42 verses, no one is too sinful to be saved. No one. But no one can be saved without facing their own sin. No one who faces their sin will ever be turned away by Jesus. And no one who has an encounter with Jesus will ever be the same again. And what we see all through Scripture, once you meet Jesus and have an encounter with Him, you are compelled to go to your huddle and say, come and see. So two things for us this morning. The first is this, if you've never crossed the line of faith, why not now? There might be a lot of things you don't know. That's okay. There might be a lot of things you're getting wrong. That's okay. There might be a lot of things that you feel like, I got a lot of change I got to make. That's okay. Why not now to at least come to Him? Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I admit I'm a sinner. Give me what you've got. But the second is this. For those of us who are already following Jesus, the question we've got to continually ask ourselves, who in my huddle do I need to invite to come and see him? Like, like who in my huddle do I actually use to use my words and say things out loud and actually invite them to come see Christ. One is a prayer of salvation. The other is a prayer of commission. We've been commissioned. And so I want to invite you to pray. If you've not yet crossed the line of faith, 
There might be a lot of things you don't know. There might be a lot of things you're getting wrong. That's okay. Salvation can be yours. And I invite you in the quietness of this moment just to make that confession. I admit I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. Give me all that you have. That simple. I admit I've blown it. Jesus, I believe you're the only way to be right with God. Give me all that you have. Here's the thing. If, if, if that has been your prayer, your heart's desire, I would love to know that. Because one, you got to tell somebody. And I would love to help you with your next steps. So if that's been you, write it on a card, put it in the offering deal, take it to start here booth, text it, email us. Let us know. The other thing is this. If you're already a follower of Jesus and you've been had an encounter with Him, you must be compelled and commissioned to actively invite your huddle to meet Him. So for you, my encouragement is this prayer. Father, who in my huddle are you pursuing? Who in my huddle is far from you, and who in my huddle do I need to invite to meet you? Simple prayer. Life-changing prayer. And the moment, if you're a follower of His, the moment He puts a person or people on your mind, you are now commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go and invite. Don't miss your purpose. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've loved us with an everlasting love. And I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to enter into a relationship with you. Continue to speak to us. Continue to draw us further into your vision, into your kingdom. We love you. In your name I pray, amen. Listen, church, I love you. It's fun to go through this word together. Keep inviting your huddle to do it with you. Let's sing.